0: and of course, we 'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now here 's our teaching for this week. How are you guys doing? Awesome. Uh, my name's Britt. If you don't know me, you can sit down or you can remain standing for my entire message. i don 't care. Do what you want. <laughs> uh, and even if you 're joining us online or you're here on our campus, we 're just so thrilled that you're here uh, to be with us. You know, we are in a calendared study of Luke. That's how we've talked about it. We went from Christmas to now, right? But another way to look at this is kind of like a college course, if you think of it this way. And today is the end of the semester and your last class. So congratulations, you made it. Yeah, you should applause. And uh, there's going to be a party in the basement at Dykstra Hall uh, later tonight. And uh, all of you, all of you, uh, you're going to get the units for this course, and they're going to count towards your degree. The only change I would make from your typical college classes is I recommend that you keep this textbook, because you're going to need it in the future. And by the way, I want you to know, as your professor, I do realize that many of you chose to skip this class often uh, (laughs) during the course of this semester, but I'm going to pass you anyway. Because the point here is that we live this out, not that you sit in these seats every Sunday. Before we jump into like this last chapter of Luke, I want to uh, look at where we've been. Okay, where we started. Uh, we started with the birth of Jesus and all the people and the events that surrounded his arrival as the Son of God, and then that story accelerated. And only a half a chapter is dedicated to those uncomfortable adolescent years that Jesus had. And we went almost right to adulthood. And uh, we found Jesus' ministry beginning in uh, northern Palestine, in a region that's, that was then called Galilee. And he spent months there picking a team, interacting with people, accumulating followers, teaching, living with, uh, and working with this group of people that was becoming part of his team. And then his ministry started expanding. And he started moving toward south, toward Jerusalem. And his, a lot of things got more intense. His teaching got more intense. And the people's response to him uh, intensified. And, you know, you kind of f- find yourself thinking, you know, Jesus, just back down a notch, Okay just like click back just a little bit, but he doesn't. Instead, he keeps, you know, going for it. And he starts asking things of the people that follow him. Rather than just performing miracles, he's sending them out on assignments. And he's debriefing with them when they come back. And in spite of that, even his ministry actually getting more difficult and his teachings more direct, uh, the crowds keep getting larger. And then they arrived in the holy city, kind of the the ultimate place that Jesus was headed, the city of Jerusalem, for that big religious celebration called Passover. And it was typically a week of family and worship and traditions that traced back at that time hundreds of years, even then. And then we saw how quickly the whole thing turned. Right? Jesus enters the city with celebration and a parade in his name, and Holy Week turns to Hell Week. In just a matter of a few days, uh, Jesus is convicted of crimes that it's so far-fetched to even think about it, and uh, that was frustrating and unfair, and then he was executed, and that was Devastating. Then just when they thought everything was over, they realized it wasn't over. The tomb was empty. And there are these women who are saying that he's, rose, he's risen again. And his followers, many of them, are like kind of in this period of uncertainty. Could this actually be true? Is Jesus really who he said he was? And so they're just kind of wondering, and that's where we are today. This last chapter, I call it epilogue, but it's it's really not the end of the story, right? It's going to begin a story, and so Luke's gospel ends here with the resurrected Jesus appearing two times: once to uh, two disciples that were not named before; they are not part of the twelve, and then then secondly to the the group of the twelve, only the eleven now. Um, And then he has some last words and a mission assignment, and then Jesus ascends to heaven. So that's that's what we're going to be looking at today. You guys ready? Okay. So uh, these post-resurrection appearances by Jesus, if you you put all the Gospels together, there would be 11 that are uh, detailed by the different Gospel writers. But here in Luke, like I said, there are two. The first one is to these two men in chapter 24, verses 13 through 32. Now, that same day, uh, two of them were going to a village that the same day of, uh, you know, the the resurrection uh, called Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. And so they're walking from Jerusalem to this village called Emmaus, and they're talking with each other about everything that had happened. And the way Luke writes this, this is a spirited conversation. In verse 15, he says, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, that word discussed is uh, an intense conversation. It's strong debate. We would call it an argument, except now they're Christians, and so they, we, would know, we know they would never argue with one another, right? So what is it they're, talk, they're talking about here? Well, what would you be talking about at this point? You, uh, you were following this guy named Jesus, and he seemed like he was the real deal. And then you go to Passover, and you think this is going to be it. This is going to be amazing. And then the whole thing ends. Jesus is crucified, but then there's an empty tomb. And the word on the street is, he's alive. And so as they're walking along and talking or arguing about all this, who shows up? Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So there's there's something super unique about the way Luke puts this. You know, like Jesus' appearance after his resurrection is, is normal, right? He's kind of he's just walking and talking with these guys. But it's also bewildering because they don't even recognize him. And you, you kind of ask yourself, like, what's going on here? Luke doesn't explain it. Is it, is it because Jesus' body uh, looks different? Or is you know is this his divine side has overtaken his human side? They don't see him. But it's powerful to think that someone who um, had been with Jesus so much doesn't recognize him as he walks along with them. Then Jesus asks them, what do you, what do you guys talking about. And I love this part. It's, it's so casual. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? So this is kind of funny to me. I hope it is to you. I hear some giggling in the audience. Cleopas is like, don't, don't you know what's happening? And, and the funny part is Jesus is what's happening, right? And, uh, Even if you look at the original Greek here, it actually is more, uh, you know, directly translated, dude, really, where have you been? (laughs) That's what they were saying to Jesus. Yet again, Jesus is all casual again. His next question is, well, what things happened? And they say, well, we were following this guy. He was a powerful prophet. Uh, Our religious leaders had him executed. We think he's dead, but just today, some women told us that the tomb is empty. There were some angels there that told them that he is actually alive, and even some of our friends went there to check out the tomb, and uh, it was empty, just like they were told. And we had hoped that he would be the one who would redeem Israel. That's the, that's the wording that they used. And so we know the word redemption, it means uh, when something horrible or tragic uh, turns into something beautiful, right? Some some bad thing is exchanged for a good thing. But these two traditional Jewish men have have a very specific um, understanding of that word redemption. Who needs to be redeemed? In their mind, the Jewish people. And the first time that word redemption is used in the Old Testament is uh, to describe how the Israelites were redeemed out of Egypt in slavery. And so this is part of their language where they, they are released, actually from a political, social, social economic situation. They're freed. And so they're under the oppression of Rome, and they think this is, this is how they've always pictured redemption. And so they want to get out from underneath the thumb of Rome and Augustus and Pilate, but we've seen often as we've gone through Luke and in particular these last couple of weeks that their idea of redemption in Jesus is entirely different and they don't grasp it so in verse 25 he said to them how foolish you are and how slow to believe that all the prophets believe all that the prophets have spoken did not the messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning him himself so again, if you translate this directly from the Greek to modern language, it says, you guys are so dumb, for real. You're foolish. And then he reminds them of what the Scripture said about the Messiah. And he, Jesus walks them through their own Old Testament Scriptures beginning with Moses through what the prophets had taught. And he concludes with, this is exactly how the prophets said this would go. The scripture says that the plan for the Messiah will be first suffering and then glory. And you know, after this Bible study led by Jesus, they still don't get it, which gives me hope. They're stimulated by it, though. They want to know more because they ask him to stay. They want, to, they want him to spend the night with them and share a meal. And it's during that meal that they recognize him, and then Jesus disappears. So it's kind of a delayed response. In verse 32, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And like, just like a little footnote, isn't it like sometimes there's, you see things later in the Bible that you never saw before, and you think, man, why didn't I see it then? That's kind of what happened here. Then Jesus appears uh, to the 11, uh, the, like the traditional disciples that, that we think of. And uh, that's in Luke 24, verses 33 through 49. And I don't know why uh, these guys didn't just take a selfie and then text it, to their friends, but instead of that, they go all the way back to Jerusalem to tell them. And in verse 36, while they're still talking about this to the 11, Jesus himself uh, stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, right response, right? Thinking they saw a ghost. So even though Jesus greets them with a word of peace, they're freaked out because they think he's some type of demonic spirit or a ghost and then Jesus, again, he's like he becomes so normal in this way. He uses their physical senses to show them that it's truly him. He says, look at my hands. Look at my feet. Touch me and see. And then he normalizes his presence further by doing such a normal thing. He says, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. So basically, Jesus is just saying, look. I'm that Jesus, I resurrected, I haven't, but I'm, I have a normal body. You can touch me, you can see the results of my execution. I consume food. And then Jesus takes another opportunity to, for a teachable moment. And once again, he says, remember what I taught you? In verse 44, he says to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then again, he says, just like he did to the two, remember the Old Testament scriptures? He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So what Jesus essentially does is he gives the gospel he gives them the good news only from the perspective of everything that they had already known in their old testament scriptures and here as luke luke is wrapping up his record of jesus's life you know he's making it so clear and so affirming that jesus is in fact really come back from the dead and this is as we've said before this is This is what changed the life of these followers of Jesus. It wasn't that they accumulated some new creed or they wanted to start a new religion. It was like they were so thoroughly convinced that Jesus had risen again, that he had resurrected and conquered death, that they go on in their lives to risk everything in order to tell the world this story which is the good news. So how do we take this occurrence, these events that close out Luke's gospel and bring them forward to us in our day and time? What are, what are a few of the takeaways that this story contributes to? Number one, Jesus is revealed to us only when we drop our assumptions. Only when we drop our assumptions. The only true way To truly know the true Jesus is to drop our false assumptions about who he is. And you say, well, what what do we believe about Jesus that isn't true? Well, let me use our images of Jesus to illustrate this. First of all, I'm going to put one up you might have seen a lot. This, um, how how many of your parents or grandparents had this picture up in their living room or something. That is awesome. So this, was, uh, this portrait of Jesus was done in 1941 by an artist named uh, Warner Salmon. And uh, it is by far the most popular looking Jesus of all time. In fact, uh, according to Google, there are 500 million copies of this out in the world today some of them on your grandparents' living room wall, okay? But then in 2002, a bunch of scholars got together, and they teamed up, uh, these biblical scholars, and archaeologists and scientists, forensic scientists, they all got together, and they had, you know, in 2002, they have access to all these different skulls of that time. And so they reconstruct what an average man in the first century Palestine would look like. And the odds are that Jesus looked more like this. He's probably they they estimate he's five foot six. He has really coarse hair. He's darker, darker complected than the European uh, almond brothers version of Jesus. So would would you put this picture up in your living room, and and why? Why not? You know. So so how can people who um, spent their formative years studying, their script, studying the Scripture um, and then spend day after day for three years with Jesus not recognize him. And, you know, again, we're, we're just speculating. As I said, you know, maybe his resurrected body changed in some way. You know, like I wonder if, um, if Cindy passed away and then came back in the body of Aaron Donald, uh, defensive lineman for the Rams, uh, if I would know her, you know, I don't know. Um, Thank you for a couple of you getting that. Um, I worked really hard on that. I tried to find, I know many of you are Rams fans, which is really sad when the dolphins are available for you to root for, but you know, um, anyway. I digress. But, so there's a lot of reasons why. But Luke um, actually indicates that it was their view of Scripture that kept them from recognizing the Messiah. Number one, you see Calopas and his friend, and they're talking what, about what happened and what it all means. And when Jesus asked them, what, what are you guys talking about? They, uh, they said that they were talking about this man Jesus who was the Messiah, but since he was killed, he couldn't be. He couldn't be the Messiah. And then what did Jesus do? In verse 27, it says, he began with Moses and all the prophets and explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus taught the scripture to them, or, or should I say, he retaught the scripture to them. And keep in mind that they already knew these scriptures from their childhood. Then with the 11, Jesus appears to them. They can't believe it. He invites them to use their senses, look at my hands, touch me, uh, look at my feet. And then what does he say? In verse 44, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And once again, we see Jesus reteaching the Scripture that they already know. Do you see that? So what was happening? They had assumptions about who Jesus was going to be. And that filter caused them to misunderstand even their own Scripture. Uh, I think it's best explained by what Cleopas and his friend said, verse 21, we had hoped that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. We had this idea from our scripture who Jesus would be, but that was through an assumptive filter. They had all these hopes and expectations. In other words, assumptions about who he would be, and that was their filter, and it caused them to misunderstand Scripture. In fact, in verse 45, Luke says that he opened their minds so that they could understand Scripture. What do you think about that? Do you, do you think, wow, how, how, how could that be? Or do you think, wow, you know, thank God that we're not confused about who Jesus is by our assumptions of Scripture because we have such a clear understanding of everything today. Or do you go, I wonder, I wonder if we're missing something every once in a while. There has to be something going on like that today in all of us. Because they're just human beings and we're just human beings. So we're all flawed. So, who is Jesus really in our minds? And it can be as different as those two images that I put up. How many of you have done your own landscaping at your house? Okay, yeah. How many of you realize, like eight years later, after you put in your landscaping, that you overplanted it? Like, did everything start to grow together? And you have, like, you have, like, these, the bigger plants or the structural parts of the planter. And then you planted this other stuff, and it, and it seems to be, like, overtaking it all. And so you find yourself eight years, 20 years ends like, cutting back a lot of the stuff that you planted because it's overtaking the structural bush or tree that you planted when you planted it all together and I think that's a great picture of what can happen to us with all of our expectations and assumptions and cultural ideas social ideas and it kind of grows up around who Jesus is and we have to be careful to keep that area cleaned out so that we see the true Jesus emerging in our lives I mean, how many, how how long has it been since you just you're reading your Bible or listen to a message, and you're like, I never thought of that. Like, and like there was like a shift in what you understood about Jesus. These men studied their, the Scripture their whole lives, and they walked with him. But it was really hard for them to unlearn. What they thought they knew, and I love that how that scene ends, where you know, um, at least with the two, they're they're begging Jesus to stay with them, and I think that, that that picture, for me, identifies the heart of someone who is trying to constantly remove the assumptions that we have about the about who Jesus is. We want we, it's not like we touched Jesus in our past and we moved on, or like, it's like, stay with me, Jesus, and continue to stay with me so that I can fully comprehend who you are and what you're doing in the world so that we can recognize who he is and we can recognize what he looks like through us. And when we do that, our hearts will burn within us. The second thing I think we can learn from this is that Scripture is meant to be understood through the lens of the gospel. This is kind of like a concluding thought to what I've been saying about our assumptions, but it also launches us into another conversation. You've heard, you've heard the saying, uh, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to, you know? Well, that's true. But one of the things that will keep that from happening is that when we read Scripture, when we interpret it, when we try to understand it, to realize that it's meant to be viewed through the gospel, through like a lens, it's our filter. And the gospel is the good news that God loves every person that was ever born, and he gave his life for every sinner. And that no person is so far from God that God's love cannot reach him. And no person is so awesome that they don't need desperately the love of God in their lives. The gospel, then, is not just a topic we find in the Scripture. It is the point of the Scripture. And there's a big difference. Jesus revealed to these first century traditional Jews who were following him the best that they could Um, how the gospel was in their Old Testament scripture. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. From their scriptures. See, without the gospel is our lens. When we read the Bible, it becomes less a redemptive work in our hearts and in the world that brings people to God, and instead it becomes kind of like a rule book or a how-to manual or a tool to condemn others and affirm myself or a reference to reinforce all my already held biases. It can even become a political manifesto. And the end result of that is that Scripture is misinterpreted, and we are nothing like jesus cindy and i uh read this book and uh um on marriage and uh and then we we led uh you know people through studying that book uh, many years ago uh emerson a- emerson egrich's book um someone help me out love what is it love and respect that's right thank you i drew a little blank here and um in it, one of, the, one of the illustrations that he uses to help us understand our differences that, um, that we can have is he said sometimes it's like a husband looks through uh, blue sunglasses and a wife looks through pink sunglasses. And we, just, we see the same situation through different lenses. As Jesus followers, God compels us to look at the world through gospel lenses, to have a gospel world view. And, And that means in every regard of my life, in every aspect of my life. So even as I read Scripture, I'm looking at it through the lens of what God has been doing in the world from day one, which is to redeem human beings, that they might live out His image in the world and reflect who God is to the unbelieving world. So is the way that I read Scripture leading me to be a witness of the good news of Jesus Christ? By that, I don't mean watered down. I mean full strength. Like Jesus said in verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. Does the way I read Scripture bring me to that where I witness of the good news in the world around me? Is my understanding Am I reading of the Scripture? Is it helping me understand how to be a witness of the good news in the world? As I read, am I discovering how God has called and empowered me to bring living hope to the world? And as I re- is my Bible study or the messages that I listen to or the podcast causing me to have a longing to live out the new commandment of Jesus, which is to love one another as he loved. Remember the rule one one and rule two is to love God with all your heart and then to love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus said the new commandment he brings to us is to love one another as he loved us. Is my understanding of Scripture leading me to that? And when I think of that, That's mind-altering in how I approach Scripture and how I do relationships or conflict or how I see events in the world. It affects how I can sense God wants me to be when I feel hurt or misunderstood or wronged or under pressure. Or when I see that the world is messed up and people are messed up and, it, and I'm anxious or I'm uncertain. If I'm reading the scripture with that gospel lens that causes me to have a gospel world view. And then I'm looking at every one of those things in my life as a, uh, an opportunity to witness of the good news of the gospel. And here's what I discovered about that. And this is the last point. A deep abiding joy comes from living out that mission of Jesus. Luke concludes uh, his volume on the life of Jesus with uh, Jesus telling them that the Holy Spirit will come upon them. Luke 24, 48, you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power on high. And then Jesus blesses them and ascends to heaven. Verse 50, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And then in verse 52, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. So they returned to Jerusalem with great joy in this crazy, crazy time. We're we're 2,000 years later. We have all this hindsight to look at this. They don't have this. And somehow these words from Jesus and waiting on the Holy Spirit Uh, They're filled with great joy, and they're, they're in church regularly praising God. They're at the temple. And so they're so convinced of the resurrection that they go back to Jerusalem, and they go back to what they were doing in the first place, which is to be witnesses of the good news. At first, if we just like look at the end part of the the end of this story, they view Jesus' death as the end of all hope. But now they realize that this is the beginning of hope, a story for the entire world, that the kingdom of God has come. And we're going to see this fleshed out. We're going to do Acts. We, I think we've talked about that. In three weeks, or four weeks, we'll start a study of the book of Acts, and we're going to see how they do exactly this. They wait on the Holy Spirit, and then these 12, or however many they have, turn into about, turns into about 120, and then it's off to the races, which brings us to who we are today. It's going to be a fascinating Study not just of history, but you know, history tells us about our future as well. I'm gonna ask the band to come up, and I think you know, like it's appropriate, like just to think of everything that we've talked about, but really, you know, if you just like want to boil it down, it's like, what is our view of the world today? We all come from different walks of life, we have different experiences, we have. We have, you know, we have uh, all kinds of different views of what is happening in the world and and what would fix it. But we are here to be witnesses of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why each one of us is still breathing and walking around. And the truth is, that's going to look different on all of us. It doesn't necessarily mean you got to go out and knock on doors or get a big sign and a bullhorn or to be a pastor even. All of us taking the good news, being witnesses of the good news in the world today, is just going to look so different, but we ha- the thing we have to get is that this is the calling that God has put on each of us so that when our view of who Jesus is is clear and accurate. It allows us to see the world through that lens and to read scripture through the lens of that good news. And when we do that, we're on mission in the world. And when we live on mission like that, based on an accurate picture of Jesus, a gospel worldview. when we we live out that mission, you know what that does? You know what that does in our hearts? It makes us joyful. It is the place that God wants us to be. You want your joy back as a Christian? Look at life through that lens. Look at your relationships through the lens of the good news. Look at the events that are happening in the world through the perspective of the opportunity we have to be a witness of the good news. You fought all weekend with your husband or wife or you're hoping for a husband or a wife. Look at your situation through where is God allowing you to experience the good news in that situation and to bring the good news to the world. Because when we... Look at what we see around us through that lens, it puts us in the place that God wants us to be. So, the first thing we have to do is believe it, right? We have to, uh, some of you need to re believe the good news. You started with the good news and it somehow it's turned into the bad news for you. You got to get back to seeing the world through that good news. And when you do that, you're going to be on mission for God you're going to make a difference in the world and that is going to give you joy unspeakable and we're going to see when we get to Luke or uh, to Acts that the disciples were totally on point about this they were single minded about it And you know how the world changed, right? You know the impact that they made. And you know with all the stuff that they face. And I I mean, I can't wait to tell you some of those stories. And if you've never read Acts, I can't wait to tell you that story. I hope there's a few of you out there that have never read it. It's fascinating. But one thing you'll see is they are so joyful in their lives, no matter what was happening. Can you imagine what that would be like? What would it be like in your life tomorrow if you lived differently like that? Or what would it be like for the impact of this church and this community if we were those people? Let's do that. Let's let's drop our assumptions. Let's look at the world through the gospel. And let's experience the joy that comes from that. Let's let's stand and worship together. Thank you. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.